This is Andrew Hall. You're listening to Dead Hand Radio. My guest for this episode is independent filmmaker and film professor at CU Denver's College of Arts and Media, David Lieben. David and I talk about filmmaking and the recent release of his post-apocalyptic film, A Feral World. We also talk about his experience as a young boy growing up in the 70s and how the implications of the Cold War affected him and his outlook on the world. It's a fascinating discussion with a multitude of resources and information for anyone interested in filmmaking, so be sure to have pen and paper handy to take notes. Above all, enjoy the show. How you doing, Dave? Welcome to Dead Hand Radio. Thanks for coming on. Of course. So how are things going with you, man? Things are going pretty good, you know, as much as you can be, you know, when you're trapped in your house a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's going pretty well, though. Yeah. Uh, are you, you're up in Colorado, right? Yes, I'm just outside of Denver. Okay. So yeah. are you still in pretty much lockdown like uh, the rest of the country? Yeah, you know, kind of like uh, I teach at a university and we have sort of like a soft return, you know, like we have uh, classes that we, we teach filmmaking. And so like those classes have a degree of face to face, but any class that's sort of lecture based is all done remotely. So where our campus normally would have like 15, 20,000 people, I think there's like 2000 people actually on campus. So and there's a there's a mask mandate in town, and uh, which is a good thing. And uh, um, uh, you know, but for the most part, it's starting to you know you could still go to restaurants and sit and you know apart from one another. And movie theaters are opening up a little bit, so it's slowly starting to have uh, some normalcy. But I'm not sure if that's simply because it's better than like not being able to go out at all. So. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Things are the same here. Um, I mean, we have tourism is coming back. Uh, we're also Vegas is a uh, kind of a, a hub for marriage uh, ceremonies. People come here to get married. And oh, that, really? Yeah, that started to pick back up. Um, the casinos have people coming in. Um, but if you go shopping, yes, you have to wear a mask. Uh, if you have a doctor's appointment, nobody can go in to the clinic or, or to the facility except for the patient who's being seen. Um, my wife has to go see an oncologist uh, every six months or so. And we had to go yesterday and I had to wait in the car. They wouldn't even let me go inside to the waiting room. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's still restrictions and, uh, there is really not a uh, a feeling of normalcy because it's still weird to walk around and see, uh, you know, hundreds of people wearing masks. <laughs> uh, that just reminded me, we, we went to Costco yesterday, um, which is a place that we go to shop every week. Um, and I got out of the car and almost got to the door of the, the store. My wife waited in the car, but, uh, got almost to the to the door and realized I forgot my mask and man I had to walk all the way back to the car get my mask turn around and go back in you know it's just such a weird inconvenience to wear masks 
Yeah, it is kind of irritating for sure. You know, it's like it used to be keys, wallet, phone. Yeah. And now it's keys, wallet, phone, mask. <laughs> yeah. True. Yes, true. Yeah, it's just a weird new, uh, you know, like I said, it doesn't feel like a normal, it doesn't feel like a new normal to me, but um, seems like these kind of restrictions are not going to let up anytime soon. Yeah, I know until uh, until there's a vaccine, I, I don't think that we're going to see a whole lot of change. Yeah, that's a that's a topic that I don't really want to get into because I'm I'm kind of scared that they're rushing this vaccine. Oh, 100%. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, man. I just don't think that it's safe to to roll out a vaccine within 6 months to a year. Especially when it's just politically driven, it isn't, you know, for our benefit. And uh, I feel like we got to just wait until, you know, the scientists do the proper testing and it, it could be another year, you know, and they're acting like they can put it out in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Yep. So let's get back on the filmmaking. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, I want to okay. talk about storytelling, which I, I think the two are uh, mutually exclusive. You know, you can be a good storyteller and not a good filmmaker or vice versa. Um, actually, I think it's hard to be a good filmmaker without being a good storyteller, but you, you get the point, right? Yeah, you could be a good technical guy, but it doesn't necessarily mean you know how to engage your audience, you know? True, true. So you have been a professor, I, I guess. Is, is that your, your uh, title, professor? Yes, I am a professor at uh, CU Denver's uh, Department of Film and TV. I'm the chair of the department there. Okay. And how long have you been doing that? I've been at CU for 16 years, but I w- I've been teaching since, uh, I want to say, 96 at various institutions. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So you know your craft. You know. I've been doing it for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Uh, now, this is kind of a loaded question, but, um, you know, the, the way things were done back when you first started and the capabilities that your average person has today with their iPhone, their Instagram, or their YouTube account, um, can anybody be a filmmaker? Uh, I think it's not that hard these days to get a good image, and, and it's not that hard to get good sound. Uh, I, I would say, yes, anyone have, has the tools available to them. And we used to say, like, you know, when I first started, like, for ten dollars or $15,000, you can have a full studio. And I think that still stands. You know, like, you get a really nice camera that shoots in 4K, you know, software is not that expensive anymore. You can get, a, you know, Adobe Premiere for, you know, I want to say like 30 bucks a month, you know. So all the tools are available to you. It, it's really manpower is the issue. Like, you, yeah, you can make a film with you and your buddies, but like well, as soon as you start including, you know, crews and lighting and speeding and locations, and it still becomes a challenge. So there's there's always going to be different degrees of it, of it but, to answer your question, the tools are available, yes. Okay, so if somebody were interested in getting started as a guerrilla filmmaker or an independent, you know, low-budget or no-budget filmmaker, what would be their first steps? 
I would say make a short film and really try to do it not with just, you know, uh, you know, in your apartment, you know, with with uh, your, your roommate, like actually write a script, work on that script and make that movie. It doesn't have to be long, five, 10 minute movie uh, and just go through that process to understand what's involved and then look at the film and have some time to reflect on that film and see what's working and what's not working. Uh, you know, and if you post it up on YouTube, you're going to get a whole lot of haters telling you what they hate about it. Uh, and then if you, um, but if you talk to some people that like, if you send it to film festivals, you kind of get some good responses. So I would say that'd be the first step is like, try, just try to do it, make the movie, um, and see where you need help. Like if you don't know how to light a scene, if you don't know how to frame a shot, those are all things that can be learned from books and from videos. Uh, but the main thing is just go out and try it. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, that's, um, that's true with almost any craft. You just, you know, you can, you can sit in a classroom and learn the principles of something but until you actually get out there and start doing it uh, on your own, making mistakes, because everybody makes mistakes, it's part of the learning process. And For sure. In fact, that's what we kind of do in our, in our classes is that, you know, we can teach you the logistics and the, and the sciences and the, you know, the, 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 the um, theories of storytelling and writing scripts. Uh, but ultimately, then we, we set up opportunities for students to then go out and do these things. And the advantage of film school is that you have built-in crews with all the other people in class. You have access to equipment. And then you get feedback. And so it sort of like streamlines the process. doesn't mean that you can't do the same thing on your own. Uh, it just, I think that film school is an opportunity for people to you know, try to get that sort of support system uh, right from the get-go. That's, that's funny. Uh, you reminded me of a quote that I heard somebody once say, and, you know, I don't know how, how solid their credentials were, but it st stood out to me when they said this. And it was something along the lines of, you, you go to film school to learn what not to do. And it was kind of a, a dig on... Uh, you know, going to film school because, uh, you know, a lot of people are against going in for formal education for whatever reason. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm against it, but this particular person was. But when I heard what you said and that quote popped into my mind, I, th I thought, well, yeah, I mean, you, you do have to learn what not to do in order to be good at what you want to do, right? Yes. And the, the problem when you do it on your own is that, you know, and even if you are not doing it on your own, you have delusions of grandeur when you make a movie, you know, you think it is the best thing ever. And it takes a while for you to sort of reflect on it to see where its failings are and where its strengths are. Um, and so what, you know, there is an attack on, you know, on, on education that's been going on for years now. And I don't know if it's entirely justified at, you know, I don't also think I see, I see the points behind it. But at the same point, um, I do think that you have an advantage by going to film school versus someone who hasn't, you know, unless, you know, if some people have like connections and they're working on the sets from the get go and they are watching the thing happening while they're doing while they're growing up. And there's an advantage to that, but it's very hard to like 
get into that system unless you're born into that, you know, the family of royalty of, of Hollywood, you know? So yeah. if you don't have that connection, how are you going to do it? And um, that's another leg up with, with uh, uh, film school. That is absolutely true. I, I didn't major in film. I did take a couple of classes on video editing, filmmaking, storytelling. I, I, you know, I just took a couple of like personal enrichment classes. Um, and that was one of the things that they were, and, and it was at a community college, it wasn't even a university. They have a really good connection with people in Hollywood and they actually send you down there as a uh, part of your, it, you know, it's part of your degree program if you wanted to, to uh, major in it but you go down there and intern with them for a week, I think a week or two weeks or something like that. And you really get connected with people in Hollywood. And that's where you have opportunities open up for, to advance your film career. Yeah, for sure. And it's almost impossible to get that unless you have, like you said, insider connections with people in the industry. Yeah. I always tell my students that, you know, a thousand people, get to work in Hollywood, you know? <laughs> uh, and the idea of graduating film school and becoming a director is really, is really not, a, they're not a lot, the odds are not good, you know? Unless you're doing this stuff on your own and you're run, funding, you're figuring out how to fund it and doing crowdfunding. And then, yeah, you can make your own movies. But if you want to do the Hollywood level film, you're probably not going to be a director, at least not for another 20 years, you know? So you, what, what we do is like we train students to get a foundational job. You can leave film school and you can get a job as a production assistant, maybe a sound, you know, assistant or, you know, like you can get a job for sure. And our students do get jobs. There's no doubt about it. Um, but um, you're, it, you're not going to be a director. You got to learn a whole lot before you can do that. <laughs> well, and you have to develop a good work ethic. You have to be a personable person, somebody that can, that is likable. It's, you're not just going to go down there and start working and work in the industry for 20 years and automatically become a director. There's no ladder of progression in, in that industry. You have to really make your own, your own path to if that's what you want is to ultimately be a director. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Good. Well, that's, that's good information. Um, now let's go back to the indie filmmaking uh, as a, um, as a place where you can start because uh, there have been some success stories where people have come from making their own films and then they, sure. you know, are able to break into Hollywood that way. But uh, what are some of the biggest challenges of filmmaking? There are so many things that you have to have addressed. Like I would say filmmaking is one giant problem. So the main thing is you've got to really want to make this movie because as an independent filmmaker, nobody's waiting for your movie. Nobody cares about your movie. So it's up to you to really believe in this thing and want to get it done because it is a lonely fight up that hill because, <laughs> uh, no, like I said, it, it is, it's a big challenge. So the, I would say there's several places that you got to start. And one of them is having a good script. You know, you really have to have a good script and, you know, get some feedback from people that, you know, that 
really know what they're talking about in order to get to that next level. So once you have the script, that's a big starting point. You know, now you can go forward and you can try to uh, cast and raise money. Raising money is always a big issue as well, because when you're an indie, you know, you're, it's not like you have a, a big budget, you know, like most people are working on the project for little or no money. And if that's the case, therefore you have to, you know, work around their schedule, you know? And so now you're dealing with other issues of far as uh, like, okay, uh, this actor's only available this day because she can't take off of work. She needs to keep her job. And so uh, you have to kind of work around that. And then that, that cascades down the line to everybody else on board, the camera people, the, you know, the lighting people, the sound people. And so we get that all on board. But uh, I would say the main thing is script and money and vision are your first steps. Script and vision? Script, vision, and money. Yeah. Okay. That's a, um, that's what we're going to touch on next. We're going to touch on script writing, storytelling, basically having a foundation to start from. Yes. There's a, uh, when you, when you said that you have to work around people's schedules it, it reminded me of a, um, a documentary film that I just saw, I think it was on, on Netflix. And it's, I think it's called Raiders. It's about these two kids back in the 80s or uh, 90s, after they saw the Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time, they decided they wanted to make that movie, the same movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, scene by scene. And they did it. <laughs> they did it themselves. Them and a couple of friends got together, started shooting. And over the course of, I don't know, 20 years, I guess, they made this this movie that is an exact remake of the original Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, movie. Is it any good? Uh, the, the movie itself was well received, but it's the backstory of two kids having a vision and a passion and letting nothing stand in their way to complete their goal. That really inspired the, the audience. It was only shown at uh, some film festivals but like I said, the, the audience loved it. And when you, when you see it uh, scene for scene, what these guys did is unbelievable. It's, it, it's incredible. Yeah, they made it, you know, in their backyard, literally in their backyard. They made the entire, uh, what was the, yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark. They made the entire film in their backyard on, uh, I think they had one camera. To, to film the whole thing. Wow. Yeah. It's wow, a, that's, kind of, that's a great way to learn how to make movies, by the way. Oh, yeah. Um, because uh, what we do in some of our basic cinematography classes is we say, okay, pick a scene that you love, and then we try to get students to recreate the, the look of that image by, you know, studying it and trying to do what, has, what they're seeing. Uh, and that, and what you what you described there is taking it to a whole nother level, and uh, that that's pretty interesting. I, I'd like to see that. Yeah, I think it's on Netflix. It's either Netflix or Amazon Prime. But the movie is called Raiders: The Story of the Greatest Fan Film Ever Made. <laughs> it might even be on YouTube. I can't remember where I saw it, but I looked it up, and that's the that's the name of it. 
and, and the reason it prompted me when you said the scheduling is an issue is because these guys, they finished their film, they got it seen at some festivals and then another 10 or 20 years went by, they went their separate ways and now these guys have their own careers and they came back together because there was one scene that they hadn't yet filmed. And it was the scene where Andy's fighting uh, the, the Nazi right in front of that plane. Yeah. At the, close to the end of the movie or maybe not the end of the movie, but it was. The guy gets chopped up. Huh? Yeah. He gets, he gets, he gets shredded by the propeller. Of yeah, the plane. Yeah. yeah. But that whole scene they had not filmed yet. And so they got back together to, to film this one scene, the final scene of their movie. And one of the guys was working for a, a major video, a game company, and he had to take time off. Well, shooting went way past the scheduled um, time of, you know, that they had allotted for the shooting. So he had to keep asking for time off and extending his uh, leave of absence from his job. And his boss was getting fed up and almost fired him for it. Uh, huh. But yeah, that, that just goes along with what you were saying that you the scheduling is one of the biggest challenges you're going to run into when you're making an independent film because nobody's getting paid or, or very few people are, are getting paid. They have regular jobs that they have to, to go to and regular lives. And this, this movie making hobby that everybody's, kind of participating in is secondary indeed it might be indeed. your priority as the filmmaker but everybody else involved is really looking at it like man this is something that i want to do but i have to make it to my job i have to you know take care of my responsibilities of real life yeah and then not only do they maybe they even want to do it but you get 12 hours into your day and they start questioning why am i here again? <laughs> yeah, good point good point because it's not it's not easy work it might be fun putting a film together but it is not easy work and i would also say that aside from the director and the cinematographer and the actors everyone else is sort of sitting around and waiting for the shot to start, you know? So there's a lot of sitting around and waiting. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if you're directing the movie, it's nonstop chaos. If you're in, but for everyone else, it doesn't feel like that. That's interesting. It, it's, it's really cool to see these. Um, uh, I, I like to watch um, documentaries on how films are made because you see kind of behind the scenes type of stuff that, Goes on. I mean, you don't even see a tenth of the minutia that goes on behind the scenes, but it's still interesting to see what what goes on behind the scenes of movies. Indeed, yeah. Um, so, as you mentioned, having a good script is kind of the core of any good film, and which leads to the next section I wanted to talk to you about, and that's storytelling. Um, so. Do you, uh, you know, I mean, do you teach storytelling as part of your uh, curriculum or is that something that people have to continuously work on and, and learn from the beginning? Um, it is a big focus to our, the program at CU Denver for sure. Like we are all about script and storytelling and how do you then use the tools to supplement that story. So if you, if you don't have a script, you don't have anything. 
So it is all, and it doesn't have to be, you know, um, a fiction film. It could be nonfiction. It could be a documentary. Uh, it still needs a story. You still need characters that you care about in order for your audience to be engaged. I mean, we're, there's so much content out there that you're fighting with, you know, stuff that is way beyond <laughs> the means of, of a beginning filmmaker. So, you know, it is a tough battle. But yeah, story is, is all of it. And that is really where we, even when we teach cinematography, you know, it, we then reflect on the script, you know? So we're saying, okay, here's the script. What is the tone of this movie? If, and then so once we can identify that in, in verbally, now we can start to imagine how do you, how do you augment that theme or, or, or idea with a certain type of lighting or a certain type of look? and the costumes that people wear and the locations where people are, it all has to be part of that story. And so, yes, uh, it is a big part of our focus. What are some of the rules that, uh, that you teach people in the early stages of story to, of learning storytelling? What are some of the core disciplines that people need to focus on? Uh, when you mean as far as writing? Yeah, when somebody's starting out as a storyteller, because storytelling goes beyond the process of filmmaking. Um, yeah. You need to be a good storyteller to be a good marketer. You know, you need to be yeah. a good storyteller in, in, in almost every aspect of your life. To be a good teacher, you have to be able to spin a good yarn to keep people interested so that they can equate what they're learning to some real world um, subjects you know there, there's a storytelling element involved in teaching uh so what are some of the the rules that you know off the top of your head i know you i didn't give you like any heads up on this question but um what are some of the rules that you think are important for people to focus on uh i'd say when you're writing a script a couple of things come to mind first off it helps if you write about something you really know or something you're passionate about, because then it's much easier to get going. And the other thing that I would say is when you sit down to write initially, you can't be worrying about what other people are going to think about it. You just gotta like have fun and write and, and sort of build a world while you're writing it. And just imagine and think and pretend and what would this person say and don't, and really try to push out all the stuff that you are imagining the haters are going to hate. Because a first draft is always just a first draft. It's, it's not uncommon for that first draft to have about 20 different versions before you finally are ready with, with the script. And a lot of people say, whatever you've written initially, throw it out and start again. And I've never been a big fan of that because uh, I don't know, I, that's a lot of work. I'm not just going to throw it out, but I will build upon it and uh, start to remove things that might not be working. But that would be my first step, I would say, is just, let yourself have fun and imagine without the criticisms knocking down their, knocking down your creativity. Cool. So yeah. to sum, sum that up in one word, I would say write fearlessly. Yes. Yes. But also what's even more important is to write period. Just you get, yes. you got to sit down and do the work. One of the things I remember, I, I, saw, I saw Spike Lee talk once, and I remember a lot of people were asking him questions about it. And like, because everyone has good ideas, but until you write them down, 
they're nothing, you know, like, so even if you're not a, a seasoned writer, you got to write it in order for it to have take shape. So, um, you know, good ideas don't mean anything. It's really writing them down. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, so do you have anybody for, uh, I mean, sorry, do you have any recommendations for like books or other resources that somebody who's interested in self teaching or self learning this discipline of storytelling what kind of uh, uh, screen, you mean like screenwriting yeah well that's your that's your primary um area of interest so yeah if somebody wanted to get into screenwriting uh what what kind of books or even videos um maybe even yeah. a youtube channel where somebody teaches uh filmmaking uh, or script writing what do you do you have any resources that you could mention yeah i mean i would i actually um i took a class not too long ago i mean i know how to write scripts but i you know i wanted to learn from people who know more than i do and so uh taking classes is a good thing with people of expertise and and listening to what they say the other thing i would say is like um read read screenplays see how it's done you know like because it they're sadly you know, a lot of, of our students don't really like this, is that the formatting of a script seems so technical and un, not fun. But the truth of it is, Hollywood, no one is going to read your screenplay in the Hollywood level if there are any typos or if it's not formatted properly. So you got to understand the basic format of what a script is supposed to look like and what things you should and shouldn't say in a script. You know, so uh, there's a couple of books that I really like. And I'm looking at my, my, my bookshelf right now. And one of the ones that I really, you know, aside from all the screenplays that I, I own, um, I also really like uh, this book and it's called Your Screenplay Sucks. <laughs> and it has and it has a hundred different tips in there about writing your screenplay. Now that comes, and what I really liked about that one is that, you know, it pulls no punches uh, and it really goes into the detail of what you should and shouldn't do in your in your in your screenplay, um, and there's a basic book that a lot of screenwriters either love or hate, but it's the one that most film schools use by Sid Field, and Sid Field has a like it's the it's the book that talks about you know first draft and uh, first act second act and third act when does the inciting incident occur, uh, so I would say those are the two books that I I use a lot and. Um, so what, what, what was the name of that one for, by Sid Field? The Foundation. So Sid Field's book is called Screenplay, The Foundations of Screenwriting, Step-by-Step -step Guide from Concept to Finished Script, uh, or The Screenwriter's Workbook. There's a whole bunch of Sid Field books, but the basic one is The Screenwriter Workbook, and that's the one that people use a lot. You know, the, the issue with it, though, that other people don't like is that it sort of propagates the formulaic storytelling. You know, like this is the way movies are made that have been quote unquote Hollywood movies. So I do think that there is some, you know, I am interested in movies that sort of break the formulas, but the problem with those movies is that nobody buys them and nobody goes to see them, but it doesn't mean that they aren't good. Um, so, um, but if you want to learn how to write uh, movies the way they are written, I would say that book uh, um, one, the one says your screenplay sucks and then the screenwriter's workbook by Sid Field are the kind of the basic starting points. Perfect. 
Excellent. Yeah. Good, good resource. Now, uh, you also mentioned that it's a, a good idea for, for new screenwriters to kind of look at scripts of films that they have already seen. Uh, so where could somebody go to find a script for so like, like these kids that, that um, redid the, the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Where would you go to find a script for Raiders of the Lost Ark? It's not hard to find. You did on Google, you could search them. A lot of the scripts of movies that have been around for a while, they're not hard to find. Uh, you can buy, you know, printed versions on Amazon. Like I buy a whole bunch of, I buy scripts that are, you know, you know, paperback bound uh, that I found, you know, people have sold used copies for two or three bucks, you know, just because they've been sitting around forever. So I collect those and read them and I really kind of like, you know, work my way through them. And then what I like to do then is then I rewatch that movie. And it's always interesting to see how either things have been removed or added or things have or interpretations on how that is. And one of the most difficult things that you, you know, one of the things that I was struggling with the screenplay that I just finished is the notion of tone. How do you write tone? And everyone keeps telling you like, that is not something that can be taught and it's not something that can be seen <laughs> in, on, on the page. And so I, I sort of, I was really looking, I'm trying to do like a Coen Brothers type movie. And so I really, I read a lot of Coen Brothers script to try to see like, because that's the tone that I was kind of going for, this tongue-in-cheek kind of humor. And what I found is that it's really, I can't find it on the page. I don't see it. But what it is is the combination of what's on the page and then the performance, you know, like Big Lebowski. Like when I, when I read that script, it's not nearly as funny as then when you see somebody deliver the lines. And so that would be something that, you know, you have to sort of imagine what kind of film is it you're trying to make and then, Based on that is where I would try to like find the screenplay that would be closest to what you're trying to do. Cool. Yeah. Cool. I, and I, I have to say, man, I think you and I are in sync on this, on this conversation because in my notes, uh, I referenced our previous conversation. Well, our, the interview that you and I did back when you first, uh, you first, uh, started the release or you actually you were finishing up the film a feral world and you're you're getting ready to start um taking it into the uh the um indie film festival circuit uh and i think it was october of last year almost a year ago yeah and we did that interview that written interview for my website and i asked you at that time what was your favorite movie and you gave me a list of 10 or 11 movies and the big Lebowski was one of them. So in my notes, I reference that question. Um, and uh, aside from the big Lebowski, you also mentioned the road warrior and aliens were among your top picks, but you also mentioned one that's a little offbeat and it's called you were never really here. Yeah. And which is a, it's a good movie. Um, but it's, I don't think it's a, a really well-known movie. Correct. Uh, what was the actor's name? Joaquin Phoenix. That's right. Joaquin Phoenix. And it's about a loner who he, I, I don't know if he's jobless or lost his job during the film, but he, he kind of has a, 
almost like a fantasy of becoming a superhero. Is, is that the right film? Kind of. He's actually, his, his job is people pay him to find kids that oh, have that's gone right. missing. That's yeah. what, okay, that's right. Yeah. So, and, the, you know, because I haven't seen it, I don't know, it's been a year or two since I've seen that movie. But and he's uh, brutal. He's and, brutal. Like he, like, and so he goes into like these sex trafficking rings and he just decimates these people with a hammer. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Yeah. So it definitely has a strong uh, reference or undertone from the movie Taxi Driver. So it's got some, some really strong references to that movie, uh, yes. at least from my perspective. But what is it for you that makes that movie stand out as one of your top picks? Um, you know, it's funny you say that because I, I just happened to rewatch that just a couple of days ago because <laughs> I was sort of thinking about that movie. What I like about that movie is its patience. You know, I like that, you know, this is not for everybody. You know, like a lot of people need nonstop action and constant, constant, constant moving. And this one takes time and you get to know the people. I, I prefer character driven stories. And this is one, it's also performance driven, like Joaquin Phoenix is terrific in there. And he's struggling with his own abuse as a child. And, and they don't really dig deep into that. They just show like these little flashback sequences that are literally like a second long. And with just that little bit of information, you start to understand why he does what he does. And so it's kind of deep in that way. And, and, but you also have to be willing to spend the time to walk around with this guy as he's, you know, finding and looking and, and uh, uh, um, you know, searching. Uh, and so, and all the minutia of his day to day. And I, I kind of like that part of it. And the other thing I really like about that movie is the director, Lynn Ramsey, does a lot of things that are unexpected. Like, I would not think to have done the stuff that they do. And some people would argue that it's wrong. It doesn't fit into the rules of filmmaking, like how shots are framed or, you know, when they edit things, they cut out the stuff you, you think you'd want to see, like the hammer hitting the head, you know, like they don't show that stuff. They just sort of cut around it. And I think that's really bold because people are expecting to see the gratuitous violence at this point. And so without a whole lot of on-screen violence, there's a whole bunch of horrible things happening in this movie. And I really think that this filmmaker understands that the, the, the most horrific things for the viewer to absorb happen in the viewer's head and not necessarily on the screen, but trying to get you to that place is really uh, a master storyteller. And this, this woman, Lynn Ramsey, she's really terrific at it. Uh, that's true. Um, it does, it goes a long way in building the tension too for the scenes. Uh, you, you have this long, almost drawn out section of the film where you just see the, the mundane parts of this person's life. And um, you're really learning about this person, how they think. Uh, yes. And, and then the, you know, the next scene is ultra violent, but you don't, like you say, you don't see the actual, um, it, it kind of takes me back to the, the movie Jaws when um, you yes. don't see the, you don't see the attack happening. You don't see what's going on underwater. All you do is you see the girl get pulled under and then she comes up screaming for life, <laughs> you know, and the next scene she goes underwater for good. 
you don't see the and then the you know you see I, I can't remember if you see the blood fill, filled water in that particular scene because it was at night. But yeah, that, you don't see it there, but you do see her horror on her face. Exactly. Like, so it, it's her performance that sells it, you yeah. know? Yeah. And that could be considered one of the most terrifying scenes in the history of movies. I agree. I, I always say that's like probably the scariest movie ever made because people are still afraid to go in the water. Exactly. You can't go in the ocean without thinking about sharks, and it's because of that movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, so. Okay, that's an interesting take on it. And I was curious why that movie stood out for you. Um, you also mentioned The Big Lebowski and one of my all-time favorite movies. I just love that movie, man, for so many reasons. But yeah. uh, I, I, I don't want to dwell on, you know, movie reviews that much. But I do want to talk about a little bit about your film, uh, your, your recently released film, A Feral World, because it's gone through some uh, some pretty steep challenges, even for an indie film, um, because of this COVID thing. So you had it scheduled to release on the the uh, film festival circuit. When, when was when was that scheduled to take place? Early early twenty twenty, right? It was supposed to be at the. There was a film festival called in Phoenix called the International Horror and Sci Fi Film Festival. It was supposed to premiere there, and then that. Because of COVID, all the festivals went virtual or shut down. That was when it was supposed to, and then I, you know, there, I submitted to a whole lot of film festivals and got into a bunch of them that went virtual. And I don't know about you, but my feeling about virtual film festivals is it's a really thin turnout. You know, like when you go to a film festival, there's something about going to the movie theater and being there with an audience that really make it worthwhile. But when you put it online, now you're competing with Star Wars and Star Trek and all the things that people love regularly. And I just don't think people are going to tune in for it. If you get like a six or seven people to watch it, that's terrific. So the film festival, I, I actually appreciated the film festivals that postponed as opposed to went virtual because I feel like the, the virtual ones are not really that terrific. So that, uh, that brings up a whole slew of questions about film festivals like for example, if you're not a filmmaker or part of a film, uh, why would somebody go to a film festival? Usually it's for like, it's film buffs. You know, there's the people that just, you get, you, when you go to a film festival, you see films that are not your typical movie. You know, uh, a lot of times they're new, newly released that have not yet found distribution, if they even will ever find distribution. So you're going to see a whole lot of art type films that would not come across your your, your uh, Netflix queue, uh, uh, you know, you'll see things that are different. And it's, you know, it's usually people that um, are art lovers. And the other thing for the filmmaker is it's very, it's very helpful to see what sort of response your film, is it working? Um, and then furthermore, like it's a way to network and to meet people that are also filmmakers or somehow involved in filmmaking one way or another. And so it's very inspiring. You know, you see other people's work and it makes you want to do the work as well. So uh, there's a lot of good things about film festivals. And there's also a lot of things about festivals that kind of irk me as well. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, we won't get into festival bashing. Let's just, um, yeah. let's just say that uh, if you go to a film festival, it's worth it if you love movies. 
you like movies? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Or and you're it, part it, of it, you're part of a a film that's being released at the festival. That that would be another reason to go, right? Yeah, and to be part of that community at one at one level or another, even if it's just as an audience member. Okay. So the um like you said, a lot of the film festivals were either canceled went virtual or were postponed until a later date, which may still yet be unscheduled. Is that true? Or or do they yeah. have dates in 2020 that these, these festivals are going to pick back up? Uh, some people, yeah, it sort of depends. Like the one in Phoenix is really suffering with COVID right now. So they have not yet said what they're going to do, um, but they also have not canceled it. So yeah, that's on indefinite postponement. So um, it, it sort of, it depends on, on the festival, really. Okay. Uh, so for the festivals that have gone virtual, uh, has, the, has the, uh, your film released or been um, previewed at, at any of those virtual uh, festivals? Yes. Yes. Uh, it was at uh, Burbank Film International Film Festival in Glendale, um, and it got into a couple that are still going to happen. Uh, Denver Film Festival is one of them, and... So there's a few of them out there. Um, and some of them have already come and gone. And, you know, I have no idea if anyone went and saw it. Like, I don't, I'm not, like, they don't share that information with me. I don't know. Right. And that's what I don't like about it. So, like, you just put it out there and I don't know. Did anybody see it? It's hard to tell. Yeah, that, that's a little disheartening. You submit to a festival. You don't even know if the film was reviewed by anybody unless somebody reaches out to you and says, hey, I saw your film. Exactly. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, now, if somebody wanted to, uh, uh, like, attend some of these virtual film festivals, uh, is there a is there a way to find out who's hosting these film festivals? What? How do you how do you hunt that stuff down? How do you find the film festival? Yeah. Um, they're not hard to find. There's like five thousand in the United States, so. Uh, it depends on where you live. You know, you just, you, it's easy to find them. I, I, I use a service called filmfreeway.com. I have no relationship to them. I'm not selling anything. <laughs> uh, but for me, for filmmakers, it's a way to submit to film festivals in a more simple manner. Uh, but you could also go there and just do a search, you know, show me all the film festivals in San Francisco, you know, and then you can kind of see when and where those things happen. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, and so you said, you, I think you mentioned that the, the the film has been reviewed or previewed at some of the uh, virtual festivals, but you don't really know how well it's being received. No, but the film has released on September 22nd. And so now I'm starting to get some feedback from other, other you know, entities because now it's actually out in the world. That's cool. And it's on, yeah. it's on iTunes, Amazon Prime. Uh, is it on Vudu? It is. Oh, cool. It is on. It's on Vudu. Uh, it's also going. It's going to be for rent on um, uh, Redbox as well. Um, and so there's a there's a whole slew of uh, internet place uh, uh, VOD places as well um, that it's going to be on. Like Cox's has it, and so I've got a list of them on my website from from the distributor about where it's going to be. And uh, and it's yeah. Uh, plug your website right now. Uh, the website is uh, feralworld.net, okay. um, 
And it, uh, there's a little link, there's a page there that says uh, um, available on these platforms and you can, it'll have a list of all the places you can see it. Uh, you had mentioned that previously that distribution is another big hurdle for independent filmmakers. And you seem to have been able to successfully gotten your movie picked up by uh, quite a few uh, video on demand outlets. How did you manage to do that? Uh, well, that was, that was a huge challenge. So when I was finishing the movie, um, I was planning on doing a self distribution. Like I was going to do a DIY way of doing it. I didn't really want to do that because that meant that, you know, you got to be involved <laughs> with it forever. You know, like you constantly have to be marketing it. And, you know, I was prepared to do that, but I didn't really want to go that route. <clears throat> so I was able to get the film to a company called Gravitas Ventures. And Gravitas Ventures uh, uh, bought the movie. And so it's up to them now to distribute it to different platforms. And so that was a big you know, feather in my cap that I took a while to get done. But uh, so that was, that was a very good thing for me. But if you can't get a, a distributor, there are a lot of places. There's a, there's a service called Film Hub. And at Film Hub, if you are a filmmaker, you can put that movie up there tomorrow and uh, you know, they are connected with dozens and dozens of different streaming platforms across the world. And you can get the movie out there that way, but it's still up to you to make people aware that it's out there. So just by putting it up there isn't enough. You really have to start working in social media and emailing and, you know, contacting people. So you have, you know, it's a whole job. It's a full-time job if you really want to go that route. Yeah, great. Well, hey, congrats on getting the film picked up by um, a distribution outlet. Thank that, you. That, that is a huge feather in your cap. Um, do uh, do they uh, do you still get royalties on the sales, or is it just a flat fee when it comes to that? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen a dime, but uh, the way it works is uh, I can't give you the exact numbers, but I can tell you that they um, sell the movie to other platforms. They get paid and they get a percentage of it and then I get the remainder of it. Uh, so that's, so they, so they get it, they take a chunk of it. So they obviously, for them to, for them to take the movie, they have to feel like they can make money on it also. And the way Gravitas Venture works is they, they typically take a whole lot of movies and, um, you know, and so they work on volume. Some of them do really well, some of them don't, but, you know, because they work with so many movies, they tend to do pretty well. And they're also, what I really like about that company is that they treat the filmmakers, filmmakers with respect because there's a lot of thieves out there who just will take your movie and you'll never see, hear from them again. And you've basically signed away the movie. So that would be another thing <clears throat> that I would really recommend is that when you had like when somebody tells you hey we'll take your movie be really cautious because yeah when they say take your movie they mean take your movie <laughs> so you got to really read between the lines and what i did also was that i joined imdb pro and so if i got an offer from a distribution company i reached out to other filmmakers who worked with that company and said hey what was your experience with this company and more times than not, some of these companies were like, oh, my God, stay, stay away from them. I have not seen a dime, and I've lost all rights to my own movie. So it's really important to like, uh, do the research and don't just be flattered that somebody likes your movie. Because what, what you'll find is that 
a distribution company will tell you all the right things and they tell you how much they love your movie and what all they'll start really flattering you so that you feel great about them and then you give them their your movie then you never see a dime uh they have this they have this thing that they do where they say okay we're going to give you x amount of money once we get back all our marketing fees well, it turns out they never get back their marketing fees. And so then you never get the money, you know, because there's no way to really audit what they're making and what they're doing with the money and with the film. And so uh, that was one of the things. So when I found Gravitas, uh, everything I heard from them is that, you know, they're very honest and a good company. Good, good. Well, uh, that's that good information. Um you know, I I would hate to see somebody lose their film because it you know it was picked up by the wrong person and and just basically ripped them off. It happens more than the than the the opposite. <laughs> you know what? I think that is an area that um, a lot of people don't really understand is that in the distribution part of the process, there's there's thieves that are that are out there trying to take you. For everything you got yes you know they your film is a product and that's all they care about they don't care about you and they're you know they know that you are passionate about this movie and you want to get it out in the world and so they take advantage of that and that doesn't even uh that doesn't even um like the the piracy of a film is not even part of that that's that's just a different type of scam altogether where they take advantage of the filmmaker um, yes. and take the film away from them. I mean, pirating is yeah. a totally different aspect of the theft process, Yeah, but uh, yes. man, that's something that I really wasn't too aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, the, the next part of the, of our conversation, if you still got time, um, yeah. I, I want to get into some some areas that this podcast is known for and that's the cold war before we do yeah. that is there anything else you want to talk about filmmaking or about your film that uh, we haven't really touched on um no just that if, in case people care about that seeing the movie just so you know it's a, it's a post-apocalyptic story uh about it's a coming-of-age story uh in in that world so um that's basically you know all i have to <laughs> okay yeah. well no that's a, yeah. that's a good point um and we did a pretty comprehensive interview on my website previously and you also yeah. did an interview with our friend evan at from the wastes on his podcast yeah. about the film so if anybody wants to get more detail about the film before seeing it um check out those two website or the you know my website or from the wastes podcast and then the film's available and it's out available now on all the um, streaming platforms. Yes. Uh, so that's that's good that you mentioned that. But um, next I'd like to talk about the Cold War. And you being a child of the 70s and 80s, I think you were born in, in – you're about the same age as I am. So I was born in 66. Yeah, I was 63, yes. Oh, okay, so you yeah. you grew up in the 70s. You remember – I'm sure you remember uh, parts of the Vietnam War, this, yes. the uh, the launching of the um, oh man, 
forgot the name of the freaking space program that went to the moon. <laughs> yeah, the Apollo program. Uh, you remember the the Apollo uh, astronauts landing on the moon? Um, I do. My, I remember my mother waking me up to show me that you know the blurry image on TV. Ah, that's yeah. awesome, man. Yeah. So, and 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 in my mind, that was a huge part of the Cold War. A lot of people don't equate the space race to the Cold War, but in my mind, it was a it was a a big part of it. And uh, so, let me just ask you, you know, from your earliest memories. What um, what do you remember about the Cold War? I do remember feeling this sense of doom, like it was it was inevitable that we were all going to die from nuclear holocaust, which is maybe why I'm interested in the post-apocalyptic genre. Because I, I remember like a teacher, a history teacher telling us, and he, he, something that he really shouldn't have told little kids, is that it was just a matter of time that we were all going to get nukes because there's too many nukes out there to not have them eventually go off. You know, and so I just felt like this doom <laughs> that was just waiting to happen, you know, and the notion of radiation killing you, you know, the invisible way, you know, this thing you can't see that will kill you is also pretty terrifying. Um, and, you know, there's all these propaganda movies of, you know, from Russia, you know, about how Russia was the enemy. Uh, but, yeah, it was just this the notion like, of you know, hiding under a desk when a nuclear bomb came as if that was somehow going to help you, you know, yeah. I remember all that. Yeah. That, um, that might've been a talking point for the media and the educational system that they had to drill into our heads because I remember something similar to that teachers talking about, you know, duck and cover, which is BS, yes. uh, you know, and the, um, the possibility or the potentiality for nuclear war with the Soviets. Uh, but did you did you really come to awareness about the the threat of Cold War through um, real world events, or did you learn more about it through like pop culture, like movies, things like that? Um. Hmm. I guess it's different phases of my life. Like the, my earliest memory was that fourth grade class with that teacher you know I don't remember a lot of my teachers but I remember that guy because he scared the hell out of me uh but after that then it was probably just pop, pop culture that I got you know most of that information from any particular movies or references that you have um hmm. you know I guess like I I do like you know the post-apocalyptic genres, like if you saw like, you know, Omega Man or something like that, where like society has been destroyed, the question was what happened to society, you know? So that was my, you know, those were the ways that I came across it. Then there was like, you know, Top Gun and like anything like that, where like there is uh, the spy, I read a lot of spy novels, you know, that took place between the uh, like, uh, what's the guy's name? Ken Foliot. You know, he wrote a lot of like Cold War novels and spy novels. And so those kind of things also sort of impacted me, as a, making me aware that this was going on. You know, like this the, the spy um, genre as well was a big part of it. What about, uh, what about TV shows? This is something that I haven't touched on with a lot of people, but, um, 
as you were talking, I thought, and there were a couple of TV shows that I particularly remember that were not, uh, you know, focused on the, the ultimate conflict of World War III, but they did focus on some of the things that had happened throughout the Cold War, earlier, you know, events in the Cold War. Like, for example, MASH, the, the TV show MASH. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it covered the, uh, I, I think that movie that, or that TV show was on air for nine years. And it covered the Korean War, which only it only took place over a period of three years. Yeah. Did you watch uh, that or have any references to, to other television shows? Um, I did watch MASH, and uh, I was a fan of that show as well. Um, and as a kid, I didn't know anything about the Korean War, so I didn't know that you know until I got older that how long it actually lasted. Um, but uh, other shows, um, hmm. and I'm sorry, I can't think of any shows right now that come to mind. Hmm. What about, um, t- did you watch The Six Million Dollar Man? I did. I loved that show, yes. <laughs> that was the first, um, for me, that was the first time I heard of the OSI. Ah, the yes. Office of Special Investigations, I think, is what it stood for. <laughs> and because is it a real thing? It is a real thing. Yeah, it it's huh. still in existence now. AFOSI is what they refer to, but they're they're kind of a um, a law enforcement arm of or of the Air Force, um, but they're they're a little bit clandestine too, or clandestine, mm-hmm. um, because they'll do stuff that like counterintelligence work and things like that, kind of spy stuff. Uh, but that was what the, um, the star of the show, Steve Austin was, um, he was part of that group. He was an astronaut, but he crashed, you know, had his body parts replaced with robotic, um, what did they call them? Bionic parts yeah he was stronger faster yeah. man barely alive yeah <laughs> yeah that, that was uh, it was a great show man i remember watching that yeah, when i was, was a kid yeah i was really into that show i think i even had a little action figure of steve austin yep <laughs> yep i had that too and then his his cyborg nemesis can't remember what yes. that guy's name was i don't either yeah um so yeah, that's I mean that's not really a strong Cold War reference, but uh, it took place during the seventies. Was it the seventies or was it the eighties when that was around? That was the seventies. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, I mean the, the 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 Cold War was still ongoing, and you know you still had the the threat of a nuclear war with Russia. Um, yes. But I, I remember one episode where he he. Um, He's chasing Bigfoot. Do you remember that episode? Yes. <laughs> yes. It's probably one of the silliest uh, episodes of that that whole show where he's like, I don't know if he was hunting Bigfoot or he was trying to escape from Bigfoot. but it, And it turned out to be that Bigfoot was a robot also, wasn't it? I think so. Spoiler yes. alert. <laughs> Sorry about that. People, <laughs> Bigfoot's yeah, a yeah. robot. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, TV was a big influence in my life as a kid growing up. And, uh, 
you know, I don't know how, how much of an influence it was for you, but. Oh, it was huge. I was a big TV. I, you know, I'm still a big TV buff, but I also remember the movie war games. Now that I mentioned yes, it, like that, good, was, good that was a movie that was hugely impactful for me as well. It's still, I still think it's a terrific movie. Yeah, that was a great movie. Um, what was it about that movie that stuck with you? Um, it just, it built on my, on my fear of like nuclear war can happen by accident, sort of, <laughs> you know, like that's, that was the part that made me like, you know, yeah, there is the kid who can hack and he can do these things and he inadvertently almost starts a nuclear war. That's terrifying, you know, like, you know, hackers having access to trying to do such a thing. And so that was really kind of what stuck with me. Yeah. The study of the cold war is really an interesting period in history because we were on the brink multiple times, you know, and not least of which was the Cuban missile crisis in the sixties. Yes. Which I think, you know, I was a little too young to remember that. Uh, but um, I do think that the residual fall off of that impacted our, our culture so much that that might be where all the teachers were feeling it and all the, the filmmakers and the writers, you know, like we were all, you know, imagining what would have happened had, had this gone differently. Yeah, that's a good point because not long after that you had, well, that happened in 63 in 1964, you had um, a movie called Failsafe and another movie yeah. called Dr. Strangelove, both about yes. the, the nuclear war. Later in the 60s, you had The Planet of the Apes, which was a post-apocalyptic um, movie that took place far in the future. But, and you don't realize it until the end of the movie what actually happened. Um, yeah. One of the greatest reveals in Hollywood history, in my opinion. Totally. Yeah. But you're right. I think that incident did spawn a whole generation of creative minds to, uh, to build on, on that incident. Yes. That's a good point. Yeah, and I point. look at that, that, those kind of things all the time, like, you know, cinema and fiction is a reflection of the things that we, you know, in the world we live in. And I often, you know, the whole zombie genre is, in my mind, a reflection of the fears of a pandemic, which, you know, we're living through now, you know. So um, those kind of things are like when you look at, you know, the, the genres that are popular and are, are getting funded and are getting made, you got to think about, like, why are these things happening? Why are we watching these things? What is where is it coming from? That's true. Yeah. And, you know, most people just want to be entertained. They don't really think of what the catalyst was. Yeah. You know, like the way, I, you know, there's, I can't remember who said, it. I think it was um, Goldwyn from, you know, MGM. He's like, if you want to send a message, send a telegram, you know, like, you know, filmmaking is, uh, I mean, and movies don't have to be sending a message. They don't have to say something. In fact, one of the, well, I got some weird criticism. People didn't want to watch my movie because they just assumed that there was going to be some political statement embedded in there. I was like, uh, that's not the movie I made. Uh, so I'm, uh, it's interesting to me that people make assumptions like that. Sidetrack though, but yeah, it is a, you know, the, the, the genres that we're seeing are a reflection of what, what, you know, our fears are. 
Yeah, and even if a well, okay. So first of all, for the record, I did see the movie, and I did not see any political agenda being exploited in that film whatsoever. Thought it was just yeah. a, a creative, almost like an art movie. Um, yeah. But it was. It had a lot of elements of sci-fi. The post-apocalyptic element was really strong in it, which is one of my favorite genres of fiction. Um, and the acting was great. The cinematography was excellent. The editing was well done. I think it was just a great indie film, man. Good job. Congrats on the movie. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and tell Amazon to um, approve my review of the freaking movie, man, because I've rewritten it three times now. What is it? Yeah, I mean, I'm having a hard time with them as well. I don't know what's going on with Amazon. You know, a lot of people told me that they've submitted reviews as well, and they have not yet been populating on the site. I don't know what's going on. Maybe all their workers are, you know, all their review reviewers or whatever, you know, their moderators for the reviews are stuck at home and don't have internet connection. Who knows? <laughs> right. <laughs> An EMP has gone off in near Amazon or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's driving me crazy because I, I do see more and more reviews popping up on, on the, um, for the film, which is great because most of them are positive. Yes. We had, one, we had one troll who, like, I, I looked at his other reviews, and so he gives, he just, like, goes around to these new movies that are coming out before they are actually released and giving them one-star reviews. And, you know, in the big picture, does that mean anything? Probably not a whole lot. But, you know, what that does is that it negatively impacts the, the release. And so I'm not sure why people would get off on doing that, you know. So what do you know? If you don't like it, you don't like it. I get that. But, like, they didn't even see the movie. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I mean, like, for, for one example is people are jealous that they're not making movies themselves. You know. Yeah, I, there's a book that I used to, I read a long time ago, I don't know if you know, it called uh, The Artist's Way. Um, and it's like, for, for people that feel creatively blocked, it's a terrific book to try to get you out of that creative, you know, uh, stalemate. Um, and, I, and I use that book and I love it, but in there they talk about people who are blocked artists. And blocked artists often are the ones that do that kind of thing, you know? Or a blocked artist might run a film festival not that that isn't a value, but it's not actually making uh, the work. It's it's distributing or you know uh, getting the work out there. But you know someone who's going to attack a movie based on what they think it's going to be, uh, it's just you know unfair to all. No, it's it's ignorant. You know, it's just yeah, it's just un it's selfish and um, sh shouldn't be allowed. And Amazon allows it to happen. That's what's frustrating. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but going back to what you said about movies being politically driven, um, there are certain certain aspects of that that I'm okay with. Uh, it's where the political agenda is so overt that you can't even enjoy the movie. You can't enjoy the story behind it because the only thing that they're really pushing this, their, their political agenda, you know, Indeed. You know who was a really, who's a good master at putting that in there in a hidden way was Clint Eastwood. Now, Clint Eastwood is a known um, uh, Republican, which is fine. Um, <laughs> you say, you say that like he's a known serial killer. 
<laughs> no. No, but he, like, he clearly he supported Bush and, and whatever. And everyone is entitled to, who, to vote whoever they want to. And not, that's not where I'm coming from. But what I thought was interesting about his movie, Richard Jewell, was he had a very convincing argument about how the media took this event and made it something that it was not. Now, no matter what your political leaning was, I thought the way it was presented really makes you think about the news that we're exposed to and how we are driven by that. Uh, you know, between that and I recently watched this documentary called Social Dilemma, I'm trying really hard to like, get off Facebook and, uh, and not just reading news that is tailored to my, my, my political leanings. Because, you know, the, the, the premise is that you are being... Facebook knows where you are politically, and you are only being exposed to people that support those political views. So it's just creating more division, as opposed to seeing a more neutral news source that shows both sides of the story. If you're only watching Fox, that's only what you're going to see. If you're only watching MS, MSNBC, that's, you're only getting one side of the story. So all that stuff is starting to freak me out a little bit. I'm trying to try to you know, move away from it as much as I can. Yeah, that's smart for your own sanity. It's hard. It's harmful. But I, I kind of feel like this, that what's happening now is not different from what was happening at a different level in the Cold War era. era. I mean, like there were still these political agenda movies and TV shows that are dropping in little things here and there. Not to the extent we're seeing today, but it was there then, too. Yes. Yeah, and it was it was subtle though. There there might have been an underlying tone, like you said, that yeah. exploited a political agenda, but it wasn't the the whole focus of the movie. Um, and I can't think of a good example right now, but um, the only thing that comes to mind really is okay, the Star Wars movie, the original Star Wars. You have the Rebel Alliance versus the empire. And in my uh, mind, after looking at that from, you know, a, a distant uh, hindsight perspective, I, I, I can easily see that the rebel Alliance was a, a representation of the West. You know, they stood for good. Um, they stood for unity and, the empire, they're even dressed like Nazis, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, it was, you know, there was a really strong political undertone, I would call it, but it wasn't like, yeah, you're right, they did. They, even uh, Darth Vader's helmet was looked like a Nazi um, uh, shock troop helmet. Yeah, I mean, if you look at like what, you know, the, the, the military, like the guys that were running the show, like they, those were Nazi outfits. There's no doubt about it. That, I was trying to tie it to the Cold War and say that the, the empire was Russia or the Soviet Union. But um, yeah, I, I think that. I think that there was, you know, th that's definitely in there as well. Like I, I would probably, I don't know, George Lucas was also making a conscious decision to do that, but you know, it's the world he grew up in too. So he had to be influenced by it also. Exactly. I really appreciate those kind of films that, you know, they, they might be driven and have some kind of a, like, okay, a good, good example is the big Lebowski. 
that movie has a lot of liberal undertones to it. But at the same time, it's just a great, entertaining, funny movie. And it's got a little bit of drama in there. Um, but I, yeah, one of my favorite all-time movies, man. I love that movie. Totally, yes. But uh, yeah, I could watch that. And and I know what the the creators of that film are trying to do. But I can also appreciate the movie as just a piece of entertainment as well. Yeah, I mean, they, they characterize both the liberal and the uh, conservative side. Like Walter is clearly conservative and, and Jeff Lebowski is the liberal, you know, tree hugger. And so like they're both caricatures though and, and their relationship is funny because of that. Yeah, yeah. And then you have the nihilists. Oh my God. <laughs> That's right. We don't care about anything. Yes. Those guys were hysterical, man. That might have been the comic relief of the whole film. <laughs> Indeed. And they were supposed to be the bad guys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I could talk about that movie nonstop, but uh, I think we should probably wrap it up. Um, okay. So final thoughts. Uh, what I wanted to give you an opportunity was to talk about what you're working on now and what, you know, what, what can people expect to see from me in the very near future? Uh, so I have finally come to a point where the film – Feral World has been put out into the world and I can stop working on it, which is really a relief because <laughs> uh, it's been such a long road to get there. Uh, I recently completed a screenplay that uh, it's actually a genre a lot like the Big Lebowski in a way. Uh, it's probably more like Burn After Reading if you're going to compare it to a, um, a Coen Brothers film. And uh, it's still really early. I'm trying to do this a little bit differently, differently this time. Instead of a pure indie, uh, low-budget film, I'm trying to attract a little bit more talent, uh, or not more talent, I would say, known talent, uh, to make it a more marketable film. And so that's what I'm working on now. Uh, and, uh, um, but it's too soon to say. Like We're hoping to start shooting in ju June, or July, if there's uh, uh, some relaxation in, in the COVID rules, uh, but we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, but um, that's what I'm working on these days. Do you have a working title for that? I do. The film is called Publish or Perish. Oh, cool. Sort of like, okay. Yeah, it, poke, it pokes fun at academia, something I know a lot about. That's kind <laughs> of your catchphrase too, isn't it? That's right. And then the way academics are judged and how we, you know, may keep our jobs is that we have to get make work and get the work seen internationally or visibly uh and so uh that's that's what that phrase typically means cool good all right well, well we'll be looking forward to that and if you like you said you're trying to are, are you going to crowdsource the the financing for the film or are you trying to look for a, a um a what is it called production company to come in and, and help you out with that? So we, I will crowdfund if I have to, but I'm not going that route yet. That's like a last ditch effort. If I have to go down that route, I don't know if I want to do that again. Uh, Cause it was so, it sucked the life out of me making that last film in that way. Or in this one, I, I am talking to a couple of studios who like the script. Uh, it's doing pretty well as far as, you know, in film festivals, the script is, is getting knowledge here and there. So that that's helpful. Uh, but um, I'm at a point now where I'm talking to a company who's trying to attach some talent to it. 
it's it's so early in the process. There's no, you know, I, I'm not connected to the Hollywood industry, so I don't have any way to get my script into those famous guys' hands. Uh, but this company is, is making some, uh, out, I was reaching out to those. So ideally we'll get a couple of names in there that would make the film a little bit more marketable. Okay, great. Great. Yeah. Well, I'll look forward to hearing more about that going forward. Um, For sure. Did you, as you were making your last film, uh, did you keep like a director's journal or video journal of, of the making of type of thing? Uh, we have some footage of, I had somebody on set kind of filming us from behind the scenes, but I haven't really, uh, you know, weeded my way through it. I find it painful to look at. So I try not to look at it. <laughs> but I have the footage one day, maybe if somebody cares about it, we could always like cut it together, but I haven't really had the, the nerve to look at it yet. Cool. Any plans <laughs> of doing that with the next project? Behind the scenes kind of stuff? Yeah, maybe start. Oh, yeah, I mean, put it that's on YouTube. a big. Yeah, at some point we'll probably, uh, you know, if if we get to the point where we can make the next movie, then we will definitely have people on site to do like a behind the scenes sort of thing. Yeah, that's a whole different project, isn't it? That um, it is. Usually, you, you we that's a thing that we assign to a student, and they get you know credit for working on it and making a documentary about the making of. Uh, so some people like looking at that stuff. <clears throat> oh, de yeah, definitely. Especially students of filmmaking and um, people that really love movies uh, like to look at that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that, um, that next project and hearing more about it as time goes on. Well, thanks. Thanks. I'm really excited about it. It's, 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 uh, a project that I've been thinking about for years and I just sat down and wrote it uh, during the pandemic and made good use of that, that, uh, right on <laughs> lockup time. That's, that's all we could do. I started this podcast during the pandemic because there you go. <laughs> I, you know, I, I needed a creative outlet. Work was drying yeah, up sure. and had to do something positive. So well, I really am enjoying your podcast. So I'm glad you did. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate that. It's always nice to hear. I don't hear a lot of what people think about it. I don't know if people don't want to hurt my feelings. Or <laughs> what, I think what? it's good. Like my experience with having just released a movie is that if no one's saying anything negative, it's a good thing. Cause only the people <laughs> that hate the film typically write about it. So <laughs> well, I, I will adopt that attitude for <laughs> sure. Uh, so if anybody else wants to follow along and see what you're up to and hear how things are rolling out for that, that next project and your life in general, what, um, how, how would people connect with you? Um, actually, you know, I, I do have a blog that I kind of revisit once a month or so on my website at feralworld.net. And so there's a director's blog in there, which I, I've been talking about feral more than I've been talking about uh, the new film. Uh, but as I am now, uh, you know, moving away from that movie, maybe I'll start using that site to continue the words there. So that's a good place to find me. Good deal. And social media? Uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook, um, maybe a little less these days, uh, and David Lieban, and I'm also on Instagram as feral underscore filmmaker. Okay. What about in, uh, what about Twitter? Yeah, I'm there as well as uh, feral underscore filmmaker. Okay. Yeah. Good deal. Um, so that's all I have 
for you, David. Is there anything else that you'd like to bring up, um, talk about, plug? Uh, that is it. I just really appreciate talking to you. I, it was an enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. I appreciate you coming on and sharing so much of your time with me. Of course. All right, David. Thanks again, my man. All right. Take care. Have a nice day. You too. Dead Hand Radio is a podcast about the Cold War, its history, and the effects it had on our culture, technology, and the future of our world. My goal is to examine these and other topics, to learn, to educate, to entertain, and exchange ideas with those interested. So join me, and together we'll explore a fascinating period of history and examine some incredible advancements in weapons, technology, science, art, and culture and discuss how all of it relates to the future of our world. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on this program, drop me an email or visit deadhandradio.com. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm Andrew Hall, and this is Dead Hand Radio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>